Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. What I say, anytime people are doing stuff out of duty, obligation, or guilt, there's usually a great deal of passivity that binds those together. And, and the outcome is not going to be very good, very good, very good. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path, or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome back psychotherapist and author John Lee. I invited him on to talk about his book, Half-Lived Life, Overcoming Passivity and Rediscovering Your Authentic Self. When I read his book, I realized that passivity is one of the main reasons why so many of us feel that we're not living to our full potential. And the problem is that passivity is, well, passive. So it can be hard to recognize and even harder to admit to ourselves that we're often the only one holding ourselves back from getting the life and relationships that we desire. And I thought maybe the best introduction for this conversation would be for me to read a few excerpts from John's book, starting with his definition of passivity. Passivity is the compulsion to pursue the opposite of what we say we want. Passivity can manifest as self-sabotage, settling for less, differing dreams, or turning to denial or substitution. For example, you may have dreamed of becoming a dancer, but instead you became an accountant who works 70 hours a week and feels exhausted all the time. To the outside world, you look like a doer, 
But the truth is that you're hiding who you are under a mask. Passivity is a true shapeshifter that can take different forms. It takes on so many different disguises that it not only confuses others, but after a while, even fools us. We have worn the disguise for so long, we actually think our false self is our true self. It is this passive false self that stifles and sometimes smothers truth, growth, passion, and creativity. To live more fully during the next part of our life, we must root out the passivity that corrodes human contact and makes a mockery out of the words intimacy, love, compassion, passion, and purpose. For far too long, psychologists, therapists, self-help writers, and the general public have been in the dark and therefore in denial about this demon that weakens our ability to handle depression, bad relationships, anxiety, and fear. It leads to underachievement, being passed over for promotions, and financial stagnation. Do you want to live your life fully in charge of your destiny and unabashedly joyful? then you have to learn how to spot passivity wherever it rears its chameleon head and go against it with all the strength you can muster. If we engage in this battle for authenticity, we can live full lives that are characterized by energy, consciousness, compassion, and deep caring for one another, ourselves and the planet. If we don't, we can sit in quiet desperation, waiting for someone or something to rescue us from our passive malaise. Until now, only a handful of academic neo-Freudians have been the ones discussing, in intellectual and clinical language, the passivity problem that plagues us as individuals and as a society. The few books that tackle this issue are difficult to read at best and impossible at worst. So what you have in your hands is a translation of sorts from highbrow intellectual probing to a down-to-earth explanation of the problem. My user-friendly language and approach avoids shaming, blaming, and demeaning anyone who is struggling with this issue so that you can make your own private pilgrimage through the mind and mind fields of passivity, guilt-free. And John ends with this. It is time to be who you really were meant to be and do what you were meant to do. Well, I really love John Lee's down-to-earth approach and straightforward language and I hope you really get something from this conversation and that it inspires you to go out and read John's book even if only to rule out passivity as one of the core issues that you might be facing in your life we all suffer from passivity in at least some areas of our life so this is probably the best book on the topic that I've ever read. And, you know, John is just so empathetic and compassionate and caring that uh, he makes the medicine go down a little easier. So I hope you get a little taste of that in this conversation. So now please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with therapist and author John Lee on The Medicine Path. It's uh, a great honor and pleasure to be back here with John Lee once again. 
John, thanks so much for joining me, accepting my invitation. Um, I've come to think of you as a, a wise uncle, you know, the kind of wise uncle that we all wish we had in our life who uh, you could go to with your your troubles and your questions and who might be able to have just a little something to offer you that would help out. And uh, that's how, you know, I think of you these days. So thanks for joining us. Brian, that's one of the nicest, best compliments I've ever had. Hmm. I, I, I thank you for that. And, and uh, I'm very much appreciative that we're on the show and talking again. Yeah. Well, I really, uh, I was reading your book, uh, Half-Lived Life. Hmm. And it's all about um, passivity and overcoming passivity. And it was one of those things. It was like your book on uh, emotional regression. Uh-huh. Once you named it and described it in the book, I went, oh, my God. Now now it's a thing. And a thing uh-huh. that I wasn't really aware of or couldn't like quite put my finger on. And mm-hmm. for me, passivity was one of those things. When you started to describe it, the effects of it, the signs of it. Uh, I started to recognize it at times in myself and then in my clients as really being at the root of a lot of their issues. So if I'm any kind of indicator, maybe there's other people out there who haven't really thought about passivity or maybe don't want to think of themselves as a passive person because there is an element of uh, counterintuitive in how you might... um, yeah, how you might see it. So could we start out with you just describing how you define passivity? Give us a general overview. That would be helpful. Okay, let, let, let me layer it back just one, one layer before we do. Um, it all began really to coalesce for me when I had this very successful doctor in New York and we were doing a session and he he just said sort of outright he said John I, I don't know what to do because I feel like I'm half the doctor I could be I'm half the husband I could be I'm half the father I could be I'm half the friend that I could be and it just sort of popped into my head, and I said, uh, but it sounds like you're living a half-lived life. And, and, of course, that's where I got the title of the book, The Half-Lived Life. And, and he said, that's exactly my life. And I got to thinking about it, and I thought, he's successful? He's intelligent, he's financially secure, but there's something here that's not happening. Um, And then a few days later, I I thought, well, what would it be? He's not lazy. He's not procrastinating. I mean, he's got his MD. You don't get your MD for procrastination, your laziness, you know. And so I just kept thinking, what could it be if it's not those things? It has to be something else. Now, 
In my first book, A Flying Boy, which I wrote a million years ago, I mentioned the word passivity. And I, and I didn't go into any explanation or any analysis of it, no research about it. But I was looking through my first book and I saw that word and I thought, that's what he's talking about. He's, he's being passive. And then, of course, the next thing I had to do was go, okay, now, John, where are you being passive? And and what in the early workings of this, what I realized is is pretty much no one is passive across the board in every area of their life. And what I had to do was single out the areas that I could recognize and say, there's my passivity. Okay. And so the next stage of that. <laughs> was uh, about that same time before I started working on the book, um, um, this guy, friend of mine said, I, I was sitting out on, the, on my deck at my studio and I was writing poetry and geese were flying overhead. And the guy on the phone said, John, don't you want another bestseller? And, and would you like to you know, get back like you were with the first books and stuff. And I said, oh, yeah, man, I would love that. That'd be great. That'd be great. And then I got off the phone and I thought, I want to write poetry on my deck and I want to watch the geese fly over my head. But I just told that guy that I wanted a a best-selling book again. And I thought, that's not true. If I wanted a best-selling book, I could market and maybe generate and go on more shows. And I thought, that, but that's not what I want. Now, why did I say that? <laughs> so that's when I came up with a definition of, compulsive, of uh, passivity. Passivity is the compulsion to pursue the opposite of what we say we want. People were telling me all the time in counseling, I want this. I'd give anything if I could have this. Oh, if I just had this, my life would change. And then I'd say, but your actions don't don't follow that. Why are you spending money telling me you want want a partner who uh, does work on himself, is intuitive? read self-help books. And then I ask you, tell me about your last two partners. And and they would say, oh, they were nothing like that. And I go, right, right. You're telling people, your therapist, your friends, you want these things, but your actions belie that. And that's when I got to work. Yeah, okay. So let's go back to that moment you're on your deck and somebody kind of kind of like ask you this question that has to do with maybe what people's expectations of someone like you who's had success 
uh, through writing what you would probably expect they would want. Like, who wouldn't want a bestseller? Who wouldn't want to be on Oprah or, you know, Good Morning America, right? And so you immediately agree. So how is that? So I could see the the passivity part of it, that actually when you tapped into what you really wanted, it was nothing like that. And so what kept you from asserting that and saying, well, actually, no, it's not. Why do you have that automatic reaction to agree with this ideal? Because that because that's what I realized, I later realized, that's, that's what everybody was telling me uh, sometimes in counseling. Uh, I'd say, I, I had this buddy. This was another piece of this. I had this buddy for 30 years. And every time I would uh, publish a book, he would read the book and then come over to my house and say, John, um, you know, I want to write a book. <laughs> and I think I could write a book. And I'd say, I think you ought to write a book. And, and then he would never write a book. And then I'd put one out and do that same, would do that same little dance. And what I realized was he doesn't want to write a book. What he wanted was the validation from me, a writer and a friend, that he could write a book, that he was intelligent enough to write a book. That was the underlying want. Right. Like the underlying question, if you got down to it, would be, John, do you think I'm as smart as you? Because, man, you seem real smart to me. And I'm feeling like a little smaller than you right now. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But what I realized, it it especially happened with my women clients. Uh, You know, like I said, that they would say, oh, I want a sensitive guy. I want. I want him to be in touch with his emotions. And then I'd ask them, what was their present husband or boy? Nothing like that. And what I said was, and I've been saying it ever since, let's deal with the truth of your actions and deal with that truth of your actions so that we can come out of this passivity and move towards these things that you want, but we can't do it if we don't deal with the truth of your actions. And you know, in non-psychological terms, we've heard it since we were kids. Actions speak louder than words. You know? yeah. And that's when I I thought I, I, I gotta I gotta look with that. So I'm gonna say it again. Passivity is the compulsion or the addiction to pursue the opposite of what we say we want. Yeah. Well, in that example of the the woman who comes to you and says, this is the kind of partner I want, and this is the guy I got, and he's not interested in self-improvement or any of that stuff. He doesn't want to go to the weekend retreats with me, and he just wants to sit around and watch football. Now, you know, I was thinking about that because I had a client – just this morning, who is talking about this, this issue, he's really working on himself, he's engaging with me in therapy and doing all this stuff for himself, eating better, exercising, really trying to improve himself and get himself to where he wants to be. And his partner is kind of not following along. 
And I was thinking about that, how difficult a position that is, that on one hand, you want the best for your partner, and there's a certain kind of qualities you want your partner to have, especially if you're starting to change. And But a lot of people don't want to tell someone else what to do. They don't, especially men, I think there's a lot of fear of being assertive because it might be taken as being domineering uh, or self-centered or or whatever. And so it's a real fine line there between asserting what your needs and desires are and allowing the other person to be their authentic self wherever they're at. So how do you navigate that? It's it's very hard. You know, I'm thinking as you're talking, I I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but I used to do that when I was speaking at recovery conferences, I had this standard humor, jokey kind of thing. And, and and now that you're and I talking about it, what you just said made me think of it. Um, it's, I would be, I'd be a keynote at adult children of alcoholic conferences and Al-Anon conferences back in the 80s. And, and I, would, I would use this as an example and always get kind of a laugh. I'd say, Okay, I'd say to the women, now, here's a guy who's working on himself. He's in recovery. He goes to men's retreats. (laughs) He reads self-help books. And then over here on my right side is this guy who still drinks, who wouldn't do a day's worth of therapy if his life depended on it. Um, he's emotionally unavailable. He has this dark aura around him. Now, who are you going to pick? <laughs> and the women would always laugh. And I said, you know, uh, I, I could bring this healthy guy into the room right now and say, now he's available. And, and I said, and y'all wouldn't even see him. <laughs> it was like he wasn't really there. But that guy over there, <laughs> you know, who's half drunk and, and hot as hell, oh, you would see him. And everybody sort of cracks up. You know? and, and again, thinking about, I hadn't thought about this in years, that was the beginning, really, of, of my foray into passivity. It's like, no, no, I don't, I, that, that healthy guy, I don't even see. You say he's in the room, but I don't see him, you know. And, and that's where, all, you know, thinking about these origins and roots, they've been coming for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, then the question uh comes up for me like the immediate question would be well why do why do we make those choices that aren't in alignment with what we really feel we want and need and why and, and Most, so you, go ahead. the answer i mean is is like passivity but uh but underneath it underneath it ryan is shame yeah right is shame see i don't deserve a best-selling book I'm going to say I want one, but underneath that, who am I? I I have nothing to say. Uh, you know, I was told I was an idiot. 
you know, whatever it is. Um, and, and then the second part of this is something that I had to deal with a lot around the passivity thing is, is the tendency to self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. That, that if you have guilt and you have shame, then that's operating at a level of, I don't deserve that healthy guy coming through the door there. See, it, I, I've always said that if people feel guilty, they unconsciously will punish themselves in whatever way to, to, uh, to deal, to not deal with the guilt. You know, that self-sabotaging behavior. Why, why if, if I'm guilty, I must hurt myself. Maybe not by cutting or shooting heroin, but by picking the wrong partner. Mm-hmm. Not writing that book that I want to write. Yeah, that's interesting. So the passivity is a way to not get what you really want because you're afraid to get what you really want or you don't think you deserve it. Deserve it. You know, when you're talking about that, like not, you know, feeling like you deserve the best-selling book or the, the, the great guy or whatever, you know, for me, I think like what it was for me was I was actually afraid of success in the kind of areas that I wanted to be successful at, you know, I had no problem being successful when I was working for big corporations because they were the ones who carried all the responsibility. Really. My responsibility was to show up for work when I needed to and to, Uh and to do my work well, but you know, that was a responsibility I could handle. What scared the crap out of me was working for myself and becoming successful. So maybe having lots of clients or lots of yoga students and having to show up for them consistently, even like when I didn't have the energy or I didn't feel like it, like the kind of burden of that scared the crap out of me. And I think that that um, caused me to self-sabotage uh, or to be passive in maybe promoting or, or whatever for, for a long time. Once I identified that, it was like, whoo, yeah. like even just to feel the fear of that and I had to do like visualization, like what would that actually look like if I was ex- as successful as I truly wanted to be mm-hmm. and start to get a feel for it. Could you handle this? And I started to get a sense, well, you know what? I could, because it's just like what I used to do for the corporation. I just showed up, you know, right. even if I didn't really feel like it, I just keep showing up and I know I'm going to have good days and bad days. And so that helped me step into it more and to uh, kind of go for it more and not hold back so much or hold myself back. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things, this is a sidebar here. One of the things about passivity and sabotage is uh, a lot of people, especially creative people, teachers, uh, professors, doctors, social workers, uh, authors, most of those people um, suffer to greater or lesser degrees from the imposter syndrome. And, And so there's this sense that if I rise too high in my chosen art or whatever, that somebody's going to recognize eventually 
that I don't belong there, that I'm not qualified to do that. And so some of the passivity is, is then to keep that added down so you don't have to worry about that tap on the shoulder saying, you don't belong here. You're not qualified to do this. Who do you think you are? You know, mm-hmm. that, that one statement, who do you think you are to be doing this, whatever this is? Boy, it plagues the hell out of a lot of people uh, that I know are very successful. They still wrestle with that question, who do I think I am? to be writing or teaching or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, One of the things I want to say about passivity as we move towards some solutions and and repairs of this. Yeah, I don't want to get there yet. I'm going to talk more about the signs of passivity, so how we can recognize it. Because I think it is so kind of slippery. It's not something that we want to identify with often, right? Yeah. So we can miss the signs and the fact that they are often like counterintuitive, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's great. Now, one of the things, of course, that I appreciate about you is that when you talk about some of these issues, you don't do it in a way that feels shaming or patronizing, right? Like, you don't come from this position of, like, the detached authority, you know, the the big psychologist who's, like, pointing out all of our problems as if you don't have anything to do with them, right? So I think, like, your authority is earned really honestly because, like, you're talking about before, a lot of your work comes out of your own uh, recognizing this in yourself and trying to figure it out, right? Um, So... In this case, in the book, you cited your own workaholism as a result of unexamined passivity, which seems really counterintuitive to me because from the outside, no one would say John's a passive guy. I mean, like, look at he's written like 30 books or something, right? right? So could you explain that, how like something like workaholism could be a sign of passivity? Well, I, I identified, before I wrote the book, I identified the three major areas that I was passive in. One of them uh, was, and still is, sort of uh, finances. Um, I, I take a very laissez-faire approach to finances, always have, uh, you know, and when I was working on this, I thought, I just need to really bring that to the light of day that that's one of my areas. Uh, uh, the second one is was relationships that that I used workaholism to keep from being uh, intimate at, uh, with the people that I loved, including my wife at the time, because that would push down the intimacy, but also I would be so tired from working so much that then my partner, uh, I, I, I got sort of a pass. You always had a good excuse for yeah. not being more engaged socially yeah. or in the relationship. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so that, that was a thing that I, I had to see that. Um, 
And, you know, this happened with one of the guys that I worked with uh, uh, before the book, maybe during the writing of the book. The guy said, the guy said to me, John, how can I be passive? Uh, I am uh, on the Fortune 500. I sit on many uh, charity things. Um, uh, I work, you know. Uh, I help people. How can you call? How can you identify me as passive? And I just had this spark for just a moment. I said, um, "If I called your uh, uh, children, your adult children, and said, tell me who your father is, what would they say?'" And he said, "They would say, I don't know. They didn't know." I said. So all these areas over here, you weren't passive in. But parenting, fathering, you've got grown kids who say, I I have no idea who my dad is, because that's where you were passive, you know. And and he said, that's exactly right. I let let their mother do most of the the child rearing and parenting. And and so he goes, oh, so, so that's that's the passive area that I need to work on. Just like I had to work on money and workaholism. Yeah, so underneath that, maybe he was uncomfortable with showing up more for his kids, for sharing more of himself with them or letting them in, whatever. And so to avoid that, he overcompensates with the work. And then, like you said, he gets all the affirmation for that, all the praise for being so uh, active in the work life. And and he gets a pass when he's tired. It's like, well, daddy's working all day. You know, he's really yeah. successful. He's on the board of all these charities and he's such a good man. And he's out there like sacrificing himself. Meanwhile, he's just afraid to show up as a father for his kids in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and nobody showed him how to do that. Sure. He, he was shown how to be a worker bee, but he wasn't shown how to be in the work of parenting. Yeah. So some of the passivity is it, sort of generational and sociological, you know, saying, uh, you know, uh, you don't have to be active with your kids, especially to my generation. The mom would do it, and and the father's just supposed to go make the money and 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 that sort of stuff. I got to tell you one story that just came to mind. It was a central part of this whole passivity book. Um, this guy came for an intensive and uh, two day intensive with me, and I said, um, "So, bud, what what do you really want? What do you want?" Change. I love asking that question, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. What do you really want? What do you change? And he said, John, more than anything in the world, I want to be more intimate with my wife. We haven't been intimate in a long time. I said, well, tell me about it. I said, well, he said, well, here's the example. Every afternoon after work, she comes in 
She gets a glass of wine. She lays down on the couch and she watches television till time to go to bed. And I said, okay, that's what she's doing. Now, what are you doing? He's stewing over in the other room. (laughs) (laughs) He said, well, I can tell you what I did, for instance, just last night before I came to work with you. I said, okay, what, how did that go? Uh, well, you can't see this, but I'll try to be verbally descriptive. He said, I went and I stood in front of the TV. Yeah, like hands on his hips. <laughs> yeah, crossed my arms, hands on my hip, and, and said to her, why don't you turn this damn thing off? There's nothing worth watching. And why don't you get up and come to bed with me? And I said, how did that go? (laughs) And he said, thanks, buddy. I'd rather have uh, the Dallas rerun. (laughs) Yeah. She said, honey, would you get out of the way? (laughs) And I said, but you just been telling me at a hundred and some dollars an hour. For intimacy, and and basically you went and acted like an asshole, you know. Yeah, did just the opposite of what one would say. Um, yeah, so that's that what you're talking about at the opening, the compulsion to pursue the opposite of what we say we want, and maybe even like compulsion to pursue the opposite of what we really want because we might say we want one thing but really want the other and be afraid to actually say it right so like, he was he was yeah. afraid again afraid of intimacy he was afraid of the actual intimacy like the reality of it yeah. it was a nice thing for him to say he wanted but when it came down to it a part of him was afraid of that That's now right. you you give this case study in the book now you gave him some advice right yeah, yeah, it was the funniest thing. I'll never forget it. We we worked for two days on all all this fear of intimacy and vulnerability and all that sort of stuff. And and so the last uh, thirty minutes or so of the session, he says, "So what do I do to get the intimacy I want?" And I said, "Well, when you get home and she's laid out on the couch watching television, just go and sit on the couch." lift her legs up and put them on top of yours and start um, a massaging her and, 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 uh, and touching her legs. And, and you just sit there and do that. And he said, wow, I'd have never thought of that. <laughs> you want intimacy, bud. Yeah. <laughs> and so the next week he called me and he said, I got to tell you that thing that you suggested worked. I did just that. I put my her legs on top of my legs and I massaged them. And and uh, she said uh, in two minutes, "What have you done with my husband?" And I want to go have sex with this. <laughs> I'll never forget some of these things like that. You know, that's what it often is, right? Like when we're in that room with somebody. It's just we're able to see the thing that is so obvious because we're not in the middle of it, right? And it's like, you want intimacy? Well, she's lying there on the couch. How about you just go cuddle up with her? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
you know, it's it, it's a strange thing. It, it it takes a lot of it. I grew up with no intimacy or being smothered, one or the other, mm. and and so it took me well into my forties before I started really breaking that down. You know. I'll give you an example. With my first wife and my stepdaughter, I came in from work one time, and and my 13-year-old stepdaughter and her mom were lying on the couch, cuddling, and watching a movie. And I walked in. I'll never forget this. And I said, what the hell are y'all doing? And they looked up at me like I I was totally insane. And they said, we're cuddling (laughs) and watching a movie. And within a nanosecond, I realized that that never happened to me. Never. Me and my mom or dad never cuddled and watched, even as a five-year-old, let alone a 13-year-old. And I remember seeing that of, you know, oh my God, see, that triggered me because I don't really have that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that kind of thing from uh from some of the men I work with who have kids. And uh I think, yeah, you've helped identify what might be going on there, but they've often spoke about feeling like left out and mm-hmm. you know, then they'll get into that emotionally regressed state where they're mm-hmm. like eight years old again and just say something completely irrational and and not helping themselves get what they actually want which is to be part of the cuddle party right right yeah and you know that question that you asked that guy you know what is it what do you really want that's a question that it seems like sometimes you got to go pay someone 150 bucks an hour to ask you because how often do we actually ask each other, you know, what do you really want? Like, if you could just be completely honest and open and bold. But man, that's the first step to actually identifying what it is that we really want and need. Yeah, no. And, and another sidebar is I, I, I teach a lot of work with the differences between wants and needs. And most people don't know the differences. Yeah. And, get the wants and needs confused a lot and that can be an exacerbation of passivity yeah well because yeah because what we're talking about here is like what we really want desire need let's get into that a little bit because uh if we can help people articulate that better it'll help yeah see you know the way i've defined it is wants are best case scenario Best case, wish fulfillments. Right. Uh, wants can be negotiated. See? Mm-hmm. Well, compromise. Needs are, uh, cannot be negotiated. They can't be com- compromised. We must have love, touch, communication. Honesty, yeah. yeah. Often, like, associated with the highest values. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
And so when I, sometimes when I'm working with a client, they'll say, this is what I want out of my relationship or my job, whatever. And I say, yeah, but let's distinguish that from needs. What do you need from your relationship? And when you cloak it as a need, many people will say, I don't know. They can rattle off all day long what they would want, but, but they can't really, you know, say free things about what they need. Yeah. Um, and, and that has to be delineated. And you have to come out of passivity to delineate those and then to speak to those. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I often ask people what their non-negotiables are. Yeah, and you're yeah. right. Nobody has them on the tip of their tongue because they haven't nope. really thought about it. But if you're going to establish healthy boundaries and be assertive in trying to get what it is you need and ask for what you want and all that, you got to know what your non-negotiables are first. Like, where is the line drawn for you? That's right. Because otherwise, you're always playing this game of like giving and taking too much and then falling into resentment for not getting what you want and all that. But really, unless you've done the work first of identifying what those things are, like what are the blue sky dreams, you know, mm -hmm. and then what are the absolute non-negotiables? Mm -hmm. And then I also sort of drive in the direction of, <clears throat> of saying, you know, in a relationship, especially of any kind, there is always got to be compromises around what you want. But uh, I make the distinction between uh, those compromises and what I call soul compromise. Mm. And the soul compromise is made up of these needs that again are non-negotiable. And that if you do compromise on, on the soul compromises, that's when you lose yourself, that's when you abandon yourself, that's when you stay angry all the time, that's when you use addictions, because again, you got confused between soul compromise and regular want negotiable compromises yeah kind of like the 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 small self that um has its preferences and mm -hmm. loves pleasure and all of that mm -hmm. those are the things where you can negotiate and compromise mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the deep self needs yeah you, you call that in the book uh like the soul betrayal i think ah, yeah and oof when i read that i was like oh yeah you carve out a bit of your soul every time you give one of those up yeah, every time. And, and, and then that leads to uh, self-abandonment. And then the self-abandonment gets projected onto the other person mm. as if they're abandoning you. Uh, I said back in the 80s, I, I've been saying that adults cannot be abandoned. Yeah, I love that. Uh, but adults can feel abandoned yeah. all the time. And it's usually because it, that, that uh, feeling of abandonment has been grounded in the abandonment of the self 
around these soul compromises being made. Yeah. And so the passivity, first not knowing what you really want, and then not knowing how to like ask for it or to, you know, set boundaries around what you actually need and where you won't compromise. That's, I could see that clearly as passivity. And yeah, the abandonment of the self, but when someone's passive and they're not really asking for what they need from someone, they could just say, Oh, they're not giving me what they want. They're, they're abandoning me. Oh my God. Yeah. I just, I never made that kind of clear connection before self-abandonment first gets projected onto the other. And then it's like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the first step is to be really clear on what your needs and wants are separating those out, non-negotiables from the negotiables and then being able to communicate. So this comes around. And and then really act on. Yeah. When, when my, my wife and I got married. I've always been a, uh, of course, an introvert and, and uh, need a lot of time and space to myself. And, and uh, I told her that that's what I had to have. It's what I had before I met her. It's it's what I've I've always had a cabin in the woods where I would go to retreat for some periods of time. And. Uh, I said, I need you to know that's that's not going to be compromised. That's that's not a want. That's a need. And and uh, I, I want to put that up front so that it doesn't come later and 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 then have her say, "You never told me that." Was one of your sort of bottom line needs. Yeah. Um, it's it's, a, it's like setting out an agreement when you get into a relationship, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. what are the negotiable parts of the contract? What are the non-negotiable parts? Yeah. And can we agree yeah. to this so yeah. that there's no surprises later? Yeah. yeah. So, so you don't come at me and go, what are you doing always going up to your cabin and to write? Right. <laughs> it's like I told you, honey. Right. Okay. So how do we discern, you know, this is a tricky one too, right? Like how do we discern when we're being maybe inflexible or rigid or too kind of self-centered in our quote-unquote needs mm-hmm. something we just have to feel into yeah a couple of things come into mind um these statements of what i need versus my wishes especially the statements of what I need, must be communicated compassionately. Not rigidly, not carved in stone, not aggressive, uh, but compassionately. And the needs that are stated must emanate from the heart. And, and, And wishes doesn't necessarily do that, you know. Um, and, and so I, I came up with this term several years ago that I teach and I call uh, becoming compassionately assertive. So like when we got together, I, in my most compassionate way that I was able to achieve, you know, I told her, this is who I am. 
I love you. I want to be with you. Um, but I, I, I'm not willing to negotiate that out of my life, you know. So part, part of the compassion, it's kind of like the difference between caring for and caretaking. Um, most people have been taught to do the very, very passive caretaking versus caring for. And, and that people slip into that caretaking passivity. And, and many don't even know they've slipped in that. But one of the ways that we know they have slipped into that caretaking passivity is there's usually some resentment attached to it. Uh, there's some uh, anger sometimes attached to it. There's a drain on our energy is attached to it. Whereas caring for is done out of love, not guilt, compassion, uh, and it actually ends up uh, giving us energy and the person that we're caring for. Whereas caretaking passivity not only can sometimes leave the one who's doing the caretaking uh, tired and resentful, but it can also leave the person that we're doing it to. Doing it to. <laughs> Be energized and resentful, yeah. even angry. You know, uh, when people caretake out of their passivity, they're afraid to say, uh, Mom, I can't come over today and wash the dishes or clean the house. So they do it out of what I say. Anytime people are doing stuff out of duty, obligation, or guilt, there's usually a great deal of passivity that binds those together. And, and the outcome is not going to be very good. Mm. Yeah. Maybe uh, just taking a step back, maybe we could offer a little illustration because um, you're talking about communicating your, your wants and your needs and doing that with compassion and, and the right amount of assertiveness. Now, let's get real. This is how most people start out communicating their wants and needs, right? So I'll, I'll just say it the way I used to say it and the way I've heard other people say it, and then you can help us out, okay? Okay. Um, John, I need you to pay more attention to me. That's my need. I need you to pay more attention to me, spend more time with me, not so much time up at the cabin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now... Not a great way to communicate your need. Can no. you help us out? How do we get down to the actual need and communicate it in a more compassionate way? That's still well, one way. One way is you take the you out of. I need you. Okay. No, just take the new out. You out of. Okay. I need more attention. I need more tenderness. But what we say is. You need to give me more tenderness. Yeah. You need to give me more affection. And again, that's another passive language. See? And it also puts the person who's hearing it on defensive. Yeah. If I say, if I say, Brian, because um, there's an accusation in there, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't give me enough attention. You don't care. And they have to defend against that. Yeah. And yeah, because usually what the response is, I give you plenty of attention. What do you mean? I love you, honey. (laughs) Exactly. But see, if I if I say, Brian, you know, just as a man and and where I am in this uh, part of my life, I need a lot more attention. Most people who hears that compassionately assertive has nothing to defend against. They can actively say, oh, sweetie, I I didn't know I was giving you enough. Uh, What can I do to, to give you more? But as soon as I tell them they're doing something wrong, yeah. it's over. Conversation's over. Well, and then you're if you phrase it that way, if you're just really honest, which I think part of the reason why I might say something like, you need to pay more attention to me or you need to give me more loving. Um, part of that is a defense against actually being vulnerable enough to say, look, mm-hmm. honey, I don't know just where I'm at right now. I just need a little more physical touch and affection or something like that, you know? And then, like you said, then the other person isn't going to get defensive and it's an opportunity for them to practice uh, assessing and communicating their own boundaries and limitations. I hear you. Uh, I'm not able to give you that right now, or, Oh, I'd love to, you know, let's do the, um, uh, who's that guy who started nonviolent communication, uh, Marshall Rosenberg? Uh-huh. He'd always say, uh, like, I want to help you make life more wonderful. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> now, that's great. I, I think that's really great. So, the other thing, uh, okay, so that's like how sometimes people clumsily communicate their needs and it gets all messed up. And now, the other thing about like desire or want. That's a that's a tricky one too, right? So this this is like uh something came up in a client session the other day that is applicable, something like this, without getting specific, but um you know, it might be communicated like this. Honey, I wish you would uh exercise more. I I really want you to have the body you used to have. Yeah, yeah. Oof. Ooh. That's a landmine. That's the end of that conversation. That that might be actually authentic, right? Like that person might desire a certain quality in their partner that they had and have lost or something like that. So that could be actually true to that person's desire, but man, that's... The way it's said, yeah, non-starter. So how do you even start to negotiate that one, John? Uh, honey... One of my priorities and needs is for both of us to be as healthy as we possibly can. One of the things about taking the you out that I've tried to explain to people is if I just said it that way, honey, I need uh, uh, health. Uh, um, you know, well-being. Yeah, vitality. Vitality. I need that. But see, what I've tried to explain to people is my needs almost always are universal, Mm -hmm. not selective to the one person. See? 
when I say you need to lose weight and go on a diet, I'm talking and in, and I'm indicting you. Yeah. But when I say I need well-being and health and a commitment to being our best, uh, being uh, energetic, I would I would say that to Bill, my friend. I would say that to to Pat, my friend, not yep. just my wife. Yeah, but the, the so indictment, you like you said, that automatically touches the shame wound. Yeah, and then. Then they're in their shame place, and they're not going to want to take care of themselves if they're overcome with shame. Yeah. Then we're off to the races. You know, I've I've told, I was telling a a teacher at a treatment center on Mondays, I give a lecture, and uh, we were talking about, and I said, you know, in uh, in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, one of the leaps in communication was when you, I feel, and then whatever that is in the blank. When you uh, don't show up on time, I feel angry. Mm. And I'd say that was a great leap. But I wanted to take that leap further. I need. Um, I need things uh, to be uh, respected around time. See, I don't need you to respect time and only you. <laughs> I need it from these people and these people and these people. That doesn't mean I'm all get it, but that's but but it's not exclusively you. And so I was telling the class, it's real hard to do. It's it's so hard to do. I still can't quite do it all the time. Is to remove the you because the you is is another thing that's grounded in the passivity. See, if 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 being late pushes my buttons, and I tell you that when you are late my buttons get pushed. What I'm really saying is I don't want to be responsible for my buttons. Yeah. I want you to change so my buttons don't have to be dealt with. <laughs> you know, that that was really pointed out to me by um, Martin Prechtel, who you obviously oh, spent yeah. time with in the men's movement. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> He wrote this thing, and at the time I'd been exploring nonviolent communication, which is very much when you blank, I feel blank, and what I need is blank, so could you please blank, right? Fill in the blank. That's a template for NVC, basically. I just saved you $1,000, folks. Uh, (laughs) But he called that out, and he talked about how nonviolent communication is often a cover for passive aggression. And once I heard him say that, I could see it, you know, I could automatically see it. And I think that's what you're getting at there is like, if it's a way of saying, I don't want to take care of my button. Yeah. And so don't do that. <laughs> you change. Yeah. You change. And then I won't have these, have to deal with these buttons. I'm triggered. So you got to change. Instead of me like looking at what the explosive material is, it's getting triggered and taking care of that. 
That's right. And and that's the again passive the path of least resistance. If I can say when you curse at me, I feel damaged. Uh, I feel abandoned. So stop cursing at me, and then I won't feel <laughs> abandoned. You know. No, I need. To never be cursed at. From you, from you, from you, from you. Yeah. Yeah. One of the ways I think it's like, um, you know, you could talk about it as a non negotiable for me to be in relationship with anybody. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And so you you depersonalize it. I won't let anybody curse me. Yeah, this is like part of your terms and conditions, you know, the the part of the contract that nobody reads when they sign up for Facebook or something, right? But this is a part of my terms and conditions of being in relationship with me. You want to sign up for a relationship with me? Well, let's read the fine print. I won't be cursed that by anybody and stay in relationship with them, you know, something like that, right? Now, can I give, we're running, I'm running out of time here. Can I give a couple of three we won't be able to go into them in detail, but I want to, if it's okay with you, I do want to go into three solutions for passivity. Oh, uh, please. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I wrote them down so I wouldn't forget, though I've all I've talked about them for years. Um, one solution, it's not a cure. It's a solution to reduce passivity. And the first one that I mentioned in the book is remembering who you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And most people have forgotten. And so in the process of forgetting, that's part of what slid them into passivity. And so when I'm working with people who identify themselves as passivity, as passive people in certain areas of their life, I I start with, uh, who did you want to be if passivity was not a problem? You know, many people will either say, I don't know, or I forgot. Yeah, and or they're afraid to say, they're afraid to admit it, admit their dream. Yeah. And so then the third thing I say is, Before the credit cards came, before the mortgage came, before the kids came, who remember who you wanted to be? Yeah. And and a lot of people, given enough time, will say, well, it damn sure is what I became. You know, I, I, I do sort of remember what I wanted to be. And and so I sort of bring that back into the picture, but I also bring it back into the picture as it is age-related and situational-related. So... Yeah, like that childhood dream of your future might have to be updated now that you're an adult with experience and responsibilities, yeah. Yeah, somebody might say, well... John, I, I always thought I would be an actor or a dancer. <laughs> a rock star. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, something. 
And I go, and you're how old? Uh, I'm 55. Okay, then go. To, oh, I got to plug in my battery. Hold on just a second. Oh, yeah. I might, it up. <laughs> I might say, go to your community theater and try out for a part. You can't go to Hollywood, but you can go to the community theater. And that's a step out of passivity and a step towards remembering who you want it to be. Mm -hmm. The second one is what I call, uh, and I got this from the poet, uh, uh, um, Oh, what's White's first name? David White. Oh, yeah, he's great. Uh, He had this phrase called infidelity of the heart. Mm. And and one of the things I put in the book, quoting him and saying, you know, that that you not doing at any age what you believe you really are supposed to be doing or stop doing, and you don't, you're committing infidelity of the heart, which will then get played out in massive passivity. Mm-hmm. And the third and last one, and this this was this was something that was so important to me when I was researching uh, the uh, term passivity. Um, there was nothing more than a paragraph usually written in psychological literature about passivity. Um, It it was like, okay, here's five sentences on passivity. And, uh, And so I kept looking and looking and looking. But I found like four or five books and they're, they're listed in the back of my book. And even though they were neo Freudians, um, and psychoanalysts, Jungians, they all said in their own way that one of the solutions to passivity was anger work. Hmm. And I'd already written three books on anger. And so this verified what I thought would bring us out of passivity. Now, they didn't mean the kind of anger work that probably you and I uh, do, uh, more expressive emotional release rather than just talking, saying, yes, I know I'm angry. Um, but, but what I saw was, is that, that anger work is a unifying principle that people uh, from Yale and Harvard and Oxford was saying, yes, this is a part of the solution. Is uh, Now, why is that? Is that because the suppression of anger is so prevalent that you're suppressing that and you're suppressing all this energy? And so maybe passivity is a way to avoid getting yourself into situations that might trigger that anger, something like that? Yeah. And also get keep you out of situations where you actually need to express it in an appropriate, compassionately assertive way. Um, 
you know, um, anger is so taboo in our country. Rage is not taboo, but anger is taboo. Especially with men. What's that? Especially with men and for, yeah. for good, for a lot of good reasons, right? Yeah. 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 Which is another subject we can explore sometime. But, uh, but that idea. So I came up with this phrase a long time ago. Anger is for getting out of stuck places. Passivity is a stuck place. Grief is for having been in a stuck place and having been passive in so many areas of life. Anger is for getting out of stuck places. Grief is for having been in a stuck place for so long. Mm-hmm. And getting the grief is going to help you get out of any kind of lingering uh, resentment or shame or guilt about having been stuck there and all that's that, right? right? Just right. grieve yeah. it. Feel the sadness. Feel the like, oh, that loss of a missed opportunity or something. Yep. Yep. And uh, then you'll be able to get on with your life. But yeah, yep. give it the grief. Okay, my friend. Well, good. I think we solved passivity. Thanks. <laughs> Well, at well, least we can we can uh, convince ourselves for this evening we did well look at least we uh kind of cracked the seal on it i think for a lot of people because i know uh coming across your book really did that for me and um so anyone i, I would recommend your book to everyone just to at least rule out passivity as a possible cause for yeah. a lot of their sense of uh not feeling fulfilled in their life or being disappointed and things like that at least it'll highlight it so you can have a look at yourself and understand it better. Um, so thanks again, John. It's so, yeah, so great to spend time with you. Oh, thank you so much, Brian. Thank you so much. And, and uh, you know, you have great questions and you have great, all this great information. And, and I really love these conversations with you. And I thank you so much. And, uh, you know, down the road when we, have the opportunity to do it again let's do it again okay right on and uh someday when this whole uh plague time blows over i want to come down and take you out fishing or something there you go (laughs) there you go there you go i'll be i'd be glad to see you all right take care john you take care too bud bye-bye bye the medicine path is produced by brian james on unceded coast salish territory vancouver island canada For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicinepath. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.